Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Liston Witherell, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, it's great to have you here. This is a topic that is uh, very interesting to me. I love this topic to have this conversation. It's one of those topics that small firm architects struggle with. I think we're getting better at it. I think uh, as as the internet grows and our firms grow and our knowledge of how business works grows, uh, many more of us have started to learn that sales is a critical piece of the whole business process. And so it's great to, to have you here. Um, we're going to talk about sales, it's specifically sales for service. Uh, so this uh, is going to be a good one. But let me uh, introduce you first, Liston, so our audience knows who you are. Uh, Liston Witherill is the founder of Serve, Don't Sell and the creator of the Serve, Don't Sell method. He works with expert service providers like us who are great at delivering a service, which most of us are pretty good at that, uh, but need help selling it, which myself as a young architect didn't even realize I needed to do. <laughs> Something I, I discovered after getting really good at marketing and not selling enough, realized that I had no sales system. Um, Liston also hosts the Modern Sales Podcast, writes the Serve More weekly newsletter, and publishes weekly articles on his website, servedontsell.com. So, uh, Liston, this is going to be a fun conversation, I think. 
you're passionate about sales. I'm passionate about learning about sales. <laughs> but before we do that, let's, uh, let's jump into an origin story. I want to know more about you and how you got started with all of this. How did you discover your passion for what you do today? Yeah, so, um, boy, uh, let, let's start from the beginning, if yeah, you'll let's humor do that. me. I love so, the beginning. So the beginning is, as a kid, my dad got into computers very early in the late 70s, um, personal computing, writing software. Um, one of his famous stories is that he wrote an accounting program to demonstrate to his employer that he could write himself a check of any amount. Um, <laughs> they fired him that day and later rehired him when they realized they needed him to fix it. So I've been around computers for a really long time. He had a consulting business, kind of a family business, and I came up doing that. And so I was building computers by the time I was 12 and learned a lot about client service through that process. And so I've always been in this sort of consulting service oriented role. Fast forward a bit, dropped out of college, went back to college, got a master's degree in environmental science. And my stated goal in grad school was like every young American child to go into consulting. So <laughs> I graduated from school and I always wanted to go into the business side of the environment. And so I ended up getting a job at a biology consulting firm. So what we did there was basically biological studies in order for the government and developers to execute projects responsibly. And that was my kind of first entree into um, a, a, you know, not huge, but pretty large company. So I think when I got there, we were doing about 8 million. By the time I left, we did about 13 million in revenue, about 80 to 100 employees. And one of the things that really hit home for me was that this whole firm was supported basically on the strength of one person being any good at selling yep. or marketing, right? Like we, we basically did no marketing, right? So my role there was director of business development and marketing was my official title. So I did a little bit of multiple revenue operations type stuff. And what became really clear is that I could trace every dollar that came to the firm directly back to the original founder who had founded the company in the eighties. And, you know, it's great to have someone like that on board. The problem was when I would ask him to do like a workshop on what makes him so good at bringing in business. He, he had this attitude of like, um, you know, well, I'll just do what I do and everything will just work out. And most people are like, well, I'm not you. I don't know what right. the hell to do. And so here we were a big group of people who were excellent at what they did, but they didn't really understand the process of bringing in a new client. And yet they were compensated on their ability to do that. And the ownership track depended on their ability to bring in more revenue as did the growth of the company. And so that was kind of my first lesson into, wow, there's a big disconnect here between the service that we provide and why we think clients buy versus their actual buying process and what's driving them to work with us versus someone else or to do the project at all. And a lot of people didn't understand that. And so this idea of, you know, what's always driven me is how people make decisions. I'm so curious about like, you know, why did you do that? You could have done something else. 
And there's no better place to study that, in my opinion, than sales and marketing, because you get it from all sides, right? You get to understand why people market in a certain way, why they sell in a certain way, and why people buy in a certain way. And so that's what landed me here. I, that story that you tell of the firm, the biology company that you worked with, um, where there's one person, probably a charismatic, a charismatic person who sort of yeah. has a great personality and good with people and has lots of friends and, and it comes naturally to them. And I think that lots of larger architecture firms have similar situations where one of the partners is just good at that. And I, I right. worked for firms like that. Um, but there was no real sales system. There was no real strategy for sales. And certainly there's, there's no uh, succession plan for when that person moves on. And now you have a firm that either has to be closed up because they have no process or they have to start building it from scratch um, to, to build that. And, so, and, and smaller firms may not have that person, right? When we're right. talking to smaller firms that they're, that, that the, the founder, the person who's running the company may be struggling with that because they're not that charismatic person. So, um, so how do we do that? How, if you have a larger firm and there is that one person, or if we have a smaller firm and there is no, no person, um, how do we fix that? Yeah. So this, so I've thought a lot about this question and let me take a step back and just go over how I see most firms starting. Yep. So, and this is for all professional services. I'm sure it applies to architects. You could tell me if I'm off base, but often there's a person, his name is Mike, like Mike. So as you said, just kind of a natural charismatic people, person, interesting guy can fake it enough at cocktail parties to be interested in people, but really had a tremendous amount of energy to just keep going and doing stuff and just had it in himself that he was going to succeed, right? So that's one model. Another model is maybe you work at a large architecture firm, have a great relationship with one of your clients. And one day they say to you, have you ever thought about going out on your own? Or you say to them, hey, I'm thinking about going out on my own. And they say, we'd love to stick with you. And then that turns into a 20 or 30 year business. And sometimes people get fired or just fire their bosses leave and then sort of by rubbing sticks together enough, make it happen, but don't feel like they have a repeatable plan. Those are the main models that I see. Now with Mike, what was interesting when I would ask him to do sessions and I would plan them with him, but it was sort of interesting. His demeanor was sort of like, just do this and it'll all be easy, which was, you know, similar to if you had, let's say an apprentice at your architecture firm, and they failed their certification test, your advice to them to pass the test wouldn't just be, well, can't you be smarter? Like that, that's pretty much what he was telling everybody, yeah. right? Like, just be like me. It's so easy. And what I find is in a lot of these technical expertise driven service businesses, breaking it down in analytical terms is easier for people to start to understand. Cause so like, for instance, with Mike, I was like, okay, so how do you spend your day? And he goes, well, you know, I open up my computer, check my email and then, I, you know, and then what, and then what walk me through step-by-step, step-by-step. And he'd spend like an hour on LinkedIn, congratulating people on job moves or just checking in with people he hadn't talked to in a while. And he had no real system to do this other than it was just a daily habit that he yeah. used. 
And so for people who don't have a sales system, I think the first question, and I, I know you're going to ask me a question at the end, what's the one thing a small firm can do? And this is related. Um, but I think one of the big things you can do is just look back at the clients you've gotten so far and really understand where did they come from? What was motivating them? How did you build trust with them? And then look for patterns in the way that you can duplicate that. Some of it may be in terms of like where you need to start marketing yourself in order to have more opportunities in the first place. There's another question maybe we can get to is some people may have a sales problem, meaning they're not closing enough of the opportunities that come to them. And some of them may have a marketing problem, meaning they're just not getting enough opportunities. And they, they go, yeah, this is my favorite. They'll brag that I close 100% of the opportunities that come to me. <laughs> and I always say that's a surefire sign that you're not marketing effectively, right? Because you don't have enough opportunities that are competitive or where people are out looking at other options. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, for me, that's kind of the first thing is like, where do these opportunities come from and what do they have in common? What patterns can we deduce from them? The second thing is I do think you really do need a habit and a process to teach people how to work with you. So this may be partially dependent on your individual architecture practice, but often I find when people come to me and, you know, I sell coaching services, they don't know how to buy coaching necessarily, right? So I have to teach them what do they need to know? I have to anticipate their questions. And I have to tell them whether I think they're a fit to work with me or not and ask for the business, which is okay as long as I feel like I can help them, right? As you said in the opening, the name of my business is Serve, Don't Sell. So I'll tell you if I think I can help you. And I'll also tell you if I don't think I can help you or if I think that there's a better fit for you. So if you, dear architect listening to this, specialize in you know, multifamily housing that incorporates the environment in it, you shouldn't be taking on track homes or, you know, what, whatever it is, that's your specialty, right? So, you know, part of this is having the confidence to walk away, yeah. right? Which we should get to. You're in a much better position if you feel confident that, you know what, if I don't take this job, there will be someone else in the next month or so that really wants to work with me or the next year, or however long your sales cycle is. But that's a big part of it too. Yeah, so it sounds like a lot of what you're talking about, we've we've been talking about building brands recently here at Entree Architect and and yeah. marketing and and understanding who your ideal client is and and understanding how to be the guide and and you know, lead your customer through a process uh, in order to get them to the point where they're interested in in working with you. Um, and so there is that overlap between branding and marketing and sales and, and sales sure. starts, starts up there in the beginning of marketing when they first meet you to make sure that you are a good fit for them. Um, so let's assume that they've done that. Let's assume that they've gone through the branding process. Right. You have uh, the right client, right? The right client is there, um, which makes the sales process much easier, right? Because now they're already there to buy. Right. Um, how do we go from the marketing? So now they've found you, they know that you're the right person for them, um, but they still don't sign the contract. How do we, how do we make that from go from marketing to sales? I love this question. So a lot of people will come to me and ask me, 
what closing tips or what negotiation tips do you have? And I have some, right? But typically what I find is if you need that kind of advice, you're doing something wrong prior to that moment, right? So the close or your negotiation is maybe 5% of the entire sale. What about all the stuff that happens before that? Let's focus there. So my model is PGVS. So pain, what problems do, does the client have right now that they're trying to solve? What goals do they have that they would achieve if they solve that pain? So goal is just the opposite of pain. Um, what would be the value to them of achieving their goals? And then how is your solution the logical response to deliver the value and the goals that the client is after? And this, this can be done with a longer sales cycle, probably in, oh, you know, one to three calls, one to three meetings, assuming the right people are there. And so that's the main thing is really understanding what motivates the client. So that pain goal value equation, that all just means this is going to be what motivates the client. So when I think about motivation for human beings, right? There's really two sides of it. Um, one is uh, the fear or suffering or just kind of avoiding pain, right? We don't, right. Yep. from a survival perspective, that is the most base emotion, which unfortunately is creeping its way into our politics, right? So you can see, and that's occurring in the amygdala, which is one of the oldest parts of our brain. Then there's the reward, right? The reward being you get this awesome building, you look like a superstar to your boss, um, you have some big investment windfall that you make a ton of money on because this building is so awesome, right? That's the reward. That's not going to be as motivating as the pain. And this, I think a lot of people get this wrong. Both are very important, incredibly important, right? But we really need to understand both sides of that motivation and I think what a lot of people will do is during the sales process, they're pitching why I'm so great. All of this is my favorite. We have 428 years of experience at our <laughs> right. firm. And it's like, what does yeah. that mean? Yeah. Right. Like, do you have 428 people with one year of experience? Cause that's not super helpful. Yeah. Um, so, you know, really focusing on the client and what's in it for them is really the key here. And, you know, in all of my trainings and all of my material, I go through a step-by-step -step process to really uncover from the, from the client what is motivating them, both in terms of pain and their goals. So avoiding that pain, seeking the reward is what we're after. Um, and from a psychology or even neurological perspective, that is going to be what motivates the client uh, to a large degree. And so you can't skip that part. Let's take a quick break to thank our sponsors for their support of this episode. RCAT, Studio Services Bookkeeping, FreshBooks, and Twinmotion. I'm hearing it more and more among the Entree Architect community. Your workload is piling up. And with project conditions changing and limited time to get things done, it's good to have information at your fingertips. RCAT.com provides architects, engineers, spec writers, and contractors with the most comprehensive libraries of building product content. And it's designed 
so you can access it quickly and efficiently. And even better, rcat.com is free. It's free to use and requires no registration. So visit today at rcat.com and access the information you need now. That's rcat.com, A-R-C-A-T dot com. Studio Services Bookkeeping, a division of Charette Venture Group, provides concierge remote bookkeeping services to small firm architects. Liberate yourself from bookkeeping tasks by outsourcing to trusted professionals who understand the nuances of your industry and your firm size. You can maintain control of your finances without doing all bookkeeping tasks yourself. Studio Services Bookkeeping goes beyond traditional bookkeeping to help you manage cash flow, analyze project profitability, handle invoicing, and streamline your financial systems. Learn how to start outsourcing your bookkeeping today at ss-bookkeeping.com slash entrearchitect. And mention Entree Architect and get five hours of free bookkeeping with a six-month contract. That's ss-bookkeeping.com slash entrearchitect. When building a business you're passionate about, it's easy to feel like there aren't enough hours in the day. And if you're doing all the invoicing and accounting on your own, you're probably spending time on work you don't love. FreshBooks is built for business owners like you. It's the all-in-one accounting software that saves entrepreneurs and freelancers up to 11 hours a week. That's 11 hours that you can spend nailing a client pitch, serving your clients, or honing your craft as an architect. From building, sending, and following up on invoices, to tracking and managing expenses, to processing online payments, FreshBooks automates and simplifies all the tough and annoying parts of running your own business. It's also super easy to get up and running. And the award-winning FreshBooks support team is always available to answer questions. Try FreshBooks today for free. 30 days, no credit card required. 30 days. Go to entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks and enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks and get more time back to build the business you love. What if you could visualize your building in a couple of clicks, remove months from the design process, or create a bridge between stakeholders to solve problems before they even come up? Well, our friends at Twinmotion offer simple, real-time visualization for architects. Their state-of-the-art technology lets you view and edit your scene on the go in the same pixel-perfect quality as the final rendering. Twinmotion seamlessly integrates with other tools like SketchUp and Revit, transforming your BIM or CAD models into high-quality images, panoramas, standard or 360-degree VR videos, or presentations. No wonder it's used by industry leaders like Zaha Hadid Architects and HOK. What's more, you'll have access to the world's largest library of 3D assets to populate your scene. Sound complicated? It's not. What if I told you that Twinmotion enables anyone to present their biggest idea in the easiest way possible, regardless of previous CG experience, or that it uses drag-and-drop assets and the power of the Unreal Engine to truly differentiate your projects? 
To learn more, visit twinmotion.com or download a free trial. A free trial today. Visit our exclusive URL, twinmotion.link slash entrearchitect. That's twinmotion.link slash entrearchitect to try Twinmotion for free today. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. So is, is that a series of conversations that you're having with your prospect? Yeah, I think you could do both in one conversation, right? Um, it depends on how sophisticated your client is and also where they are in their buying process. So I love it when people come to me with things written down already, that's helpful, right? So if you're responding to an RFP, people will probably know some of this stuff. And then there's a, a whole different strategy you need with RFPs, which is really to understand the subtext of them and uncover aspects that people didn't understand when they wrote it. That can be really helpful in differentiating yourself. Um, but yeah, this happens. I think pain and goals can be uncovered in one to two calls. And then you really do need a value conversation. The what's it worth part. Yeah. Um, is I definitely really, want to get into that because that's important. Okay. I think uh, value, how do you price that value? Um, but I want to just talk about pain for a little bit. Is Are there specific questions that we should be asking in order to reveal that pain? Because I think the, the, the goals and the rewards people are ready to share that with you, right? They've been dreaming about this project for a long time or they've been preparing for it, they've been saving for it. Mm -hmm. They know what the reward is. They don't maybe very consciously know what the pain is, but the pain is there. Yeah. And so how do we uh, get that information from our prospects so we can use it? So questions and follow-up questions. And uh, you know, you actually have to listen to what people say. <laughs> in order for this to work, which I know is patently obvious, but also worth saying. Yes. So just, I think the main thing is asking really open-ended questions. And I like to ask situational questions, right? So take me back to the time when this project was first conceived, what was going on? Who was there? What went into it? What were some of the things you argued about internally? What were some of the things that were hard to decide on to get to the point you're at now? That would be one obvious question. Another one could be around their experience with architects, right? Have you hired architects before? What was that like, right? What challenges did you have in working with them? That can tell you something about their pain, which is, you know, the reason we're talking to you is because this firm we used to work with did this thing that we really hate, right? And we don't want it. We want to make sure that that, that, that doesn't happen. Um, and then really asking follow-up questions, because I think what you'll find is a lot of people will kind of halfway open a door to something that you really need to know about, but they won't tell you everything. And so I would always ask this question, which I stole from Ira Glass, the host of This American Life. Since we're on a podcast, I think yeah, it's relevant yeah. to bring up podcast hosts. And he asks, what do you make of that? So, you know, if just as an example, if you ask what's been your experience working with other architects and the person's like, well, we worked with this other architect and, you know, they didn't deliver the plans exactly the way we asked for them. And then it created this big delay and it just really blew up our project. What do you make of that? They're going to know what you're expecting is that they elaborate 
on that yeah. point more. Yeah. And part of the goal here in terms of this pain goals value and especially the pain is through their explanation, they're going to relive a little bit of that pain. And we want them to do that, right? Yeah. And now we haven't gotten into uh, how not to be salesy or like why we hate sales so much, but generally it comes down to the difference between manipulation and persuasion. And a lot of people think when I say we want them to relive the pain, oh, well, that's manipulative. Well, not really. If it sucked that bad, we want to help them avoid that, yeah. right? We're, we're yeah. trying to deliver something better than what they experienced before. Right. And that, pain, saying, and that pain is real. It's not, you're not, you're not placing that pain in their mind, that pain, they're telling you about that pain and you're going to be able to help them feel better. Right. And I think for me, the difference, the obvious difference between manipulation and persuasion is, uh, first of all, intent, right? Is your intent to actually help this person and deliver on promises that you make? Or is your intent to say anything in order to close the sale? And I would not advocate for the latter in any situation. So you have, we've, we've gone through the process, process of, of uh, exploring their pain, having them sort of almost relive it and feel it. Uh, talk about the, the goals and the reward that come with those goals. And the next step is value. Yeah. And how do, how do we approach value and how do we put a price tag on that? So the short answer is we want the client to put a price tag on it. So all we need to know, and um, a colleague of mine, I don't, would he allow me to call him a colleague? Someone who I know and have interviewed several times, Blair Ends. Yeah, we know Blair here. Blair's been oh, you here. you know Blair. Yep, and our community is well acquainted, acquainted with, with Blair uh, and, and uh, Shannon, Shannon Lee, the coaching director over there. Right, so Blair has a whole way of doing this and I agree with him because it's essentially based on how you could measure anything, which is the name of a great book by Douglas Hubbard, if you want to dig more into this. Um, but basically all we need to know is what the client is trying to accomplish, how they'll know if they accomplish it, translated, how will they measure whether they accomplish it or not, and then what it would be worth to accomplish it. And as the guide in this process, it's maybe your job to help them set the value. So I'll give you an example, right? Well, actually, can you give me an example? What would be something that a listener would be thinking, it's really hard for me to value this, but I know it's super valuable to my client. Is there anything that comes to mind? Well, I think the whole idea of pricing architectural services is complicated at both ends. First of all, the client doesn't have any idea what the value of an architect is. They don't even understand the service that we provide. Many of them are coming to us because they feel they have to, which is a whole other question. We can have that conversation for another hour. Mm -hmm. um, but let's assume that they do know the value of, of or at least they know what, what we do. Um, and so there's that side of it. But then there's the other side from the architect where we don't really know what, what we should be charging. Many of architects are charging what they charge because that's what other architects charge or what their boss right. charged. Um, and we also have multiple different ways of charging for our services. There's hourly fees, there's cost per square foot, there's cost of percentage of construction cost, there's flat fees, and architects, there's no industry way of doing this. 
Um, and so pricing is a very big struggle for architects on the architect side, uh, but it's also a struggle for the client on the client side because they don't know what it's worth either. Right. So let me let me just make up an example. Let's say you're building an office building for an investment firm, like a real estate development firm, right? Yep. Um, so one of the ways you could get to this is to ask them, what are you trying to accomplish? Obviously build the building, right? Do you have a time frame involved or in mind? Do you have a target? Um, like, is this class A office space? Um, how many tenants do you want? Uh, what kind of tenants do you want? Right. All of this stuff will, will determine the finished product, what the finished product is worth. Right. And so my goal in asking these questions is really to understand from the client what's important to them. So we could have two of the same building, right? But one project moves twice as fast than the other. Well, the client should pay for that, right? Yeah. Because you're going to give up some of your nights and weekends in order to deliver a building that meets all of their requirements and is structurally sound and looks amazing, right? So I think really, really getting from the client. So here, let me translate that. A building built twice as fast is more profitable to the investor, obviously, because they're not having to pay back the loan as long, right? So that's gotta be worth something. Right, and, and they can start earning revenue sooner. Or they can sell it or they, yeah, yeah. whatever okay. they're planning to do. Yeah. And so that's what I'd be trying to get to. Right. Um, let's let's take the qualitative example. If you build, you know, I, I went to grad school in Santa Barbara, and there's a community there called Montecito, which is where like Oprah and Ellen DeGeneres and maybe the Obamas have a place there. The the middle Kate Middleton or um, not Kate Middleton, um, Prince Henry and his wife live there, and so you have these spectacular homes, and often are built to spec, right? So that's a little bit of a tougher case because let's say your client is Oprah. She's pretty much willing to pay anything to get the home that she wants. But then her, this, this is the difficulty of selling. She's going to, you're not going to be talking to Oprah directly, probably. Right. You're going to be talking to some project manager or person on her staff who's trying to show her that they're getting the best prices on the market. But the, the key thing is if you can get the client, and this is, this is the point of understanding what do they want, how will they measure it, and what would it be worth to them? If you can get the client to say those things, which is always better than you setting them because they're going to be consistent and agree to them, if you can get them to set those prices, you're going to then choose a price that looks like a steal, but you want them to anchor as high as possible, right? Yeah. That's the, the whole goal here is to anchor on the value that they will receive and then charge a price that's more than the minimum amount that you would accept, right? Yeah. That's, that's sort of the idea here is to show the client and really articulate for them that it's a great deal. Now, occasionally I get asked, not often, what if the value is less than what I want to charge? And to that I say, you're talking to the wrong people. Yeah, you're in the wrong market, right? <laughs> yeah, that's not, 
Yeah, there's there's a real problem there. Yeah, and right? the answer is to get to know as soon as possible. In that case, you you want to find out that that that's a value for that person, and you need to move on to the next prospect as soon as possible, and, right. and help them move on to the right client, the right architect. Exactly. You can't be charging casino prices for local strip malls, right? That's just not going to work. Yeah. So, yep. um, yeah. All right. So, so we have uh, P, G, and V. What was the S again? Solution. Solution. What, how are you going to deliver exactly what they're looking for in terms of the value and the goals? All right. So we've set up the pain. We've set up the goals. We've we've uh, we we determine the value and have a have an anchor price and a price that is lower than that anchor price, but higher than the minimum you're willing to charge. Um, how do we move on to solution? Well, the solution should be obvious um, once we get to it. So you can think of it as a direct through line, right? So if the pain is we want a project that's delivered in three months and most people are telling us it's going to take four. Um, and so we need to you know, get this thing built as fast as possible. The goal obviously is have the project done in three months. Uh, the value of that would be saving one third on paying that loan and maybe getting a month more of rent faster once it's built. Um, and then your solution would have something to do with how you're going to design a great building in less time, right? So it, it should just be the logical response to right. how you're going to deliver um, the, the goals and the value that the client is after. So now here's another complaint that I get. Well, it sounds like the sales process has to be different every single time. Yes and no, right? So I don't know if you're familiar with the study of fingerprints, um, but I swear this is relevant. So famously, as I'm sure you know, no two fingerprints are exactly the same. Right. Right. We, we can identify people through a database based on their fingerprint if we have their fingerprints on file. But if you look at the study of fingerprints, there's only really three types, three categories of fingerprints. And 60% of all fingerprints are one single category of fingerprint. So the same is true with your sales process, right? Once, when your clients come to you, you're only going to hear a few flavors of what they want that's right. different. The exact yep. mix of how different it is or, you know, the specifics of, we want it done in X versus Y time or for under this budget or that budget. Those may be slightly different, but basically all you're going to hear is timing concerns, budget concerns, experience concerns, maybe worldview or style, right? Like yep. we want an architect who believes the following, that kind of stuff. Um, and that may have to come through in your solution. But basically, if you look back at all the deals you've ever done, you're going to find it all falls into. Uh, you know, five buckets probably. Right. And, and the more focused your market is, the more consistent that conversation yes. will be. It'll be right. as, as you refine who your ideal client is, that conversation will become consistent over and over and over again. They'll almost be replicated every time you meet with somebody. They'll all have the same concerns. They'll all have the same pains and the same uh, goals. And, and they'll be, you know, slightly different, but you'll, you'll get very good at uh, helping them find their pains and be able to, to go through the rest of the process because it'll be consistent. Exactly. So just as an example, um, when I worked at the biology firm, anytime 
an airport would come to us, we could be pretty confident they'd have one of two problems. One was bird strikes. So really bad if you're taking off or landing and a bird goes through the um, propeller, yep. that's yep. not good, right? We don't want that um, for the safety of the passengers and the airport. And also you could hit an endangered species and that's extra bad. Um, or they want to expand the airport and they need permits to do it. Those are pretty much the two main things that we saw, right? So we could plan for that pretty well. And again, the exact flavor of how much they wanted, how specialized it needed to be, uh, how fast they wanted to move, all of those things might be slightly variable, but it basically fell into those categories. Yeah. Very good. Excellent advice. Some good strategies. I think that's a great way to to look at it. And the the PGVS is easy for us to remember and and put together a, a sales system that we can start working with. Um, very very interesting list. And um, let's get to my one question. Usually let's I roll into it. this a little bit smoother, but you you're anticipating it. So <laughs> so so what is one thing that a small firm architect can do to build a better business for t for tomorrow? I would say the most important thing, and, and this touches all aspects of new revenue coming into your business, is having solid positioning. And what I mean by that is a market position. So there's a couple dimensions you can position on. Usually it's what service do we do and for whom, um, which is David C. Baker's model. But you can also think about, you know, essentially what industry do you serve? You could position yourself based on locality. So we specialize in this area of this state and this place has unique aspects to it and a regulatory environment that we understand. And we know all the regulators and what they expect to see. And we know what will fly and what won't fly once we present our plans, that kind of thing. Um, or worldview. Right. So you, there's plenty of architects who are famous for saying, you know, the most important thing is to incorporate nature into architecture. Um, that's, I think that's the most important thing because who you serve, how much you charge, what you'll build, how big your firm can be, all of that will become obvious yes. once you figure this out. Um, and so I often encounter people who ask, how can I make my sales process better? And what I find is they're not really sure what they're selling or to whom. And so it's very difficult to do that until we decide on this sort of foundational, no pun intended, foundational yeah. uh, thing. Yeah, there's, there's several steps that need to be accomplished before you even look at how your sales process works. You need That's right. the brand, you need the marketing system, um, and you you know then you need to put together a sales system uh, my positioning, when I, I recently moved from New York to North Carolina, and so we're in a different market now. But when I was in, North, in New York, um, we were in Westchester County, about 40 minutes north of New York City. Uh, we did residential work. And our position was that we did healthy, happy homes for young families in Westchester County, New York. So we knew exactly who our, our market was. It wasn't just anybody who did is building a house or doing an addition. There were young families, um, usually with young kids, and they were coming out of New York City, and so they were recent, uh, you know, they recently migrated out of the city into the suburbs, and so we, we knew that market very, very well. 
uh, and built a really successful firm with that very focused positioning. It's very good advice. His name is Liston Witherell. His company is Serve Don't Sell. The website is servedontsell.com. You should go there and check it out. Um, he has a great masterclass. You can sign up for free. The podcast is Modern Sales Podcast. Go subscribe. You can learn more about sales and specifically sales by serving and for service. So Liston, thank you. I appreciate you for coming here and spending some time with us and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. Links to all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. And thank you to RCAT, Studio Services Bookkeeping, FreshBooks, and Twinmotion for their support of this podcast. Entree Architect is proud to be a partner with the largest, most engaged AEC multimedia network on the planet, Gable Media. We're curating thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And check out Entree Architect Academy membership, ready to edit business resources, live monthly training for architects, business training that is, a supportive architect community. Yep, it's there. And Simple Systems, our new business system program developed for small firm entrepreneur architects just like you. It's in there for you at Entree Architect Academy. It's waiting for you right there at the membership. Come join me and hundreds of your entrepreneur architect friends. Visit entrearchitect.com slash join to enroll today. Be well, my friends. Be healthy, happy, safe, and secure. Thank you for listening today. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, 
us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.